0: Welcome to Talatera, a podcast about freelance educators working in natural resource fields and environmental education. Who are these educators? What do they do? Join me, and let's find out together. This is your host, Tanya Marion. Welcome, and thank you for joining me today. Today I wanted to talk to you about an opportunity that I had recently to take the podcast to its first public events. This past weekend, my community was treated to the Wild and Scenic Film Festival, thanks to the organization Inland Empire Waterkeeper. The phrase "Inland Empire" refers to an area in Southern California that covers San Bernardino and Riverside counties. Inland Empire Waterkeeper served as host of the film festival for the second year in a row. The films shown this past weekend offer a glimpse of the types of films shown during the film festival's flagship five-day event that is held in Northern California. I had the opportunity to bring the podcast to the local film festival and to introduce the public to the work freelance educators do in their communities. I participated in this event because I thought a film festival featuring the work of independent filmmakers would be a good place to introduce the public to the work of independent environmental educators and other independent individuals who facilitate connections between people and nature. My hunch that this event might be a good place to be turned out to be a good one. The podcast, my project, and the materials provided by my guest generated a lot of interest. When my participation in the festival was confirmed, I invited guests who have been on the podcast to send a flyer, a brochure, or business cards for my exhibitors' table. Scientific illustrator Gretchen Halbert, from Episode 1, sent rack cards about the scientific illustration distance program that she created. Botanical muralist Kelly Cox, from Episode 26, sent business cards and a postcard about an exhibition. Environmental educator Sarah Johnson, from Episode 6, sent postcards about the youth leadership program she created. Educator Janice Kelly, from Episode 7, sent information about nature detectives, her after-school program. Conservation psychologist Dr. Rupu Gupta, from Episode 22, sent article briefs, which are summaries of research projects that she conducted at Nology. Also available for public viewing were the Dunesland Habitat Guide, featuring native wildflowers of the Southern Lake Michigan beaches and dunes. This was created by scientific illustrator Kathleen Garnes from episode 15. The book about botanical wall charts by photographer Anna Lawrence from episode 24 was also on display. This book turned more than a few heads. To complement these wonderful materials, I created a handout that listed all of my guest interviews. Each listing was accompanied by a QR code to make access quick and easy for festival goers. You can download a copy of this handout in the show notes. Overall, the evening was a success. Not only did I have meaningful conversations with the public, I even had a few moments to do some interviews. Of course, I couldn't bring the podcast to an event without asking questions about people's relationship with nature. In between the conversations I was having with guests, I had the opportunity to sit down with three individuals. One person was an attendee, and the other two were from local environmental organizations. Both of these individuals have key roles related to education and outreach, And they were there to represent their organizations. Good evening. I'm reporting from the Wild and Scenic Film Festival that's being held this evening at the Box Theater in downtown Riverside. And this is the touring version of the Wild and Scenic Film Festival. This film festival is held in Northern California at the beginning of the year. It's a five-day event, and then the films go on tour the rest of the year the Inland Empire Waterkeeper group here in Riverside is hosting this event again for the second year in a row. When I speak with guests, I like to ask them about their personal relationship with nature. Uh, One of the two questions that I always ask is when did nature become important to you?
1: When I couldn't figure out why animals were doing what they were doing. That's when I watched some birds out in Chafee College foraging in a I didn't even know what the word foraging meant at the time. Uh, eating in a different, weird way, and I noticed a pattern. And so that got me excited, and I thought, oh, i got to figure this out. I didn't know how to figure anything out. And fortunately, there are professors at the, uni- at the school, and they got me on my way. And from that point on, it's been a life of nothing but questions, questions, questions. Why, why, why? And it's a lot of fun trying to figure that out, even though you never will.
0: I also ask people, what is your earliest memory of enjoying nature?
1: I believe it was when I was about five, maybe six years old. My family went on to vacation, and we stopped at a particular little lake. Who knows where it was up Northern California. And for some reason, while I was standing there pretty much by myself, there was a, a scent that was flowing over the lake. It's like like a, a very attractive scent. It was actually the wildflowers that were blooming. And I, I don't know what it was, but at that very moment, I realized that there was something special about it. And that was it.
2: My name is Crystal Valenzuela. I am the Community Engagement Specialist over at the Inland Empire Resource Conservation District.
0: And so what is your earliest memory of enjoying nature?
2: I think my earliest memory... Uh, that involved nature was watching Animal Planet when I was, I think maybe like four or five years old. All of my siblings were off at school and I was the youngest. So I would watch Jeff Corwin and Steve Irwin, all of those nature programs. And I just became so engrossed with the whole idea of being in the outdoors and connecting with nature. Oh, that's wonderful.
0: (laughs) Okay. When did you realize nature was important to you?
2: When I realized that it was disappearing and all the quiet spaces, all of the solitude, all of the open spaces, all of the breathing spaces, were are just slowly, slowly disappearing. Yeah.
0: What are you doing here? What do you do for the Inland Empire Resource Conservation
2: District? I am the community engagement mm-hmm. specialist, so it's my hope that I can outreach to the community, see what they're interested in, and hopefully try to get them more interested in nature and to volunteer programs. Uh, tonight, I'm wrapping our ed programs. We do mm-hmm. offer free K-12 through 12 education programs. And, uh, yeah, just trying to give out some information. Mm-hmm. And do you do a lot of events like this? I'm actually the newest member okay. of IERCD. So this, I'm still new at it, um, but I've done a couple events yeah. so far. <laughs> oh,
0: wonderful. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Thank you.
3: <laughs> okay, so I'm Kyle yeah, Rodriguez. Right. Yep. Mm-hmm. I represent the Western Riverside Council of Governments and I lead the environment department. One of the one of the programs that we encourage is household hazardous waste recycling, which has oil, paint, batteries, medicine, sharps, and just to safely dispose of them. And so one of the things that we're just talking about today is our oil recycling method. Anywhere you can buy the oil you can safely recycle. And that's an AutoZone, O'Reilly's, Walmart and as well as the oil filter can be recycled as well. Back in the day, it used to be a dust controller that put it in a hole, and so that's why we're constantly telling people where you can take it and recycle it. And so in doing so, we were given a grant funded by the state and just pro- provide as much education outreach. So we do these pop-up events. We'll go in front of an auto zone. We'll go to car shows. We'll go to schools. You know, we, we bounce around in the the range of people that you can teach. of Not only that you can recycle, but how to, even if there's a spill, how to properly handle a spill, putting cat litter on it to absorb it and safely. So it just doesn't wash off in the drain.
0: When I speak with guests for my podcast, I always ask questions about their personal relationship with nature. And I Mm -hmm. ask two questions. One is, what is your earliest memory of enjoying
3: nature? So my mother was a marine biologist. So she would take us to the ocean and to go and look at tide pools. And so we would look and put your finger in one of them and see the sea urchin crumble up and see crabs running around. And I think that's what kind of really got us going. And my father was a geologist, so oh, we would always yeah. come home, and they're always rock shopping and fossil collecting. And so to constantly see those type of things, and that's kind of what kind of got it going, got me going. Yeah.
0: And when did you realize nature was important to you?
3: I, I was born into it. I always know that the protection was important. And uh, I think when you see tragic things going on and uh, species just get wiped out that mm-hmm. were once vast over here, I think that's kind of where kind of understand nature is important i grew up in the mountains actually Mm -hmm. and so being in that escape area and then coming kind of to a city to continue to work you can just get the appreciation of being in a nature and away from the smog away from the crowd the light pollution you get to see the stars and so areas like that i understand why it's so important to protect an area and that's where my respect for nature comes yeah well thank you absolutely
0: I did not have the opportunity to speak with Megan Brousseau, Associate Director of Inland Empire Waterkeeper, during the festival. She was very busy. But I did have the opportunity to speak with her by phone a few days after the event. During my conversation with her, she talked about hosting the film festival, how films are selected, and how she plans to expand the film festival in 2020.
4: When you purchase a franchise which means like you're you're purchasing the licensing fees to host a Wild and Scenic and you have access to those films. So when you do that, you're given access to an entire library of films that have been submitted and accepted to the, the festival for that year. And so you can really pick and choose your voice or the voice of the community that you're trying to reach and you can kind of mix it up and we do our best every year through our our film selection committee to build something that's not only informational and educational and inspiring, but is enjoyable to watch and kind of has a natural progression and arc. So it can be difficult to do that, but it's, it's fun and it's interesting and it allows every single wild and scenic event to be completely different. So even if there happens to be one a month before, 30 miles away, you know that every event is going to be extremely unique and tailored to that community's desires or needs.
0: What have you learned about our community, our immediate community and the extended, extended communities, the surrounding communities? Through your conversations with people at the film festival over the past two years and also their interest in the films that you do select, and how is what you're learning changing or impacting the films that you are selecting for the film festival?
4: That's exactly spot on. The conversations that I've had through meeting folks at Wild and Scenic have really guided and changed our goals and what we we know. So we already knew that a lot of folks don't realize that the river in Riverside and through the middle Santa Ana is so gorgeous and so special and in such peril. We already know that because we are outreaching to the community all the time, and every single time we do it, we get new folks that don't know that. What was different this time, and I think this goes along with bringing in new people who know nothing about us because we came up with a really clever advertising, so... You're trying to reach this balance between bringing in like-minded individuals that just need to be inspired and connected because those are the folks that are going to give and are going to sit through maybe a little slow between films or they're committed already. So you need that as your base, but you also want to reach out through clever marketing to folks that wouldn't normally come. To a wild and scenic would normally be drawn to independent environmental and adventure films. And we did that through, uh, the animal ambassadors that we had there and the tacos and beer and, you know, that kind of thing. So because of that, I had conversations this time with folks like a young couple who said they've moved to Riverside two years ago from New York and that in two years, although they've been looking and been ready, they have not found one organization or cause that has inspired them to get involved or given them any kind of pride in their new place and that this did it for them. And they've asked if they can volunteer and become connected with our organization. And we probably had three or four different conversations like that, whether it was a couple that's moved here or someone who works here in an engineering firm and wants to know how they can get their engineering firm involved. So, I think that that's exactly what we want, and when you ask how does that guide how we choose things for the the next time, so you really are at the mercy of what you have available that year from people who have made films and submitted them, and so last year, our inaugural year, it was a bit of magic. It was probably the time where we've had the most staff, the most interns, and So many people came together, and we had some phenomenal films like Paul's Boots who really transcends environmental issues, adventure issues, and just speaks right to the heart of, of how we spend our lives and who is important to us and what our legacy will be. So this year, I would have liked to have had really heightened emotional opportunities there. There weren't that many. So what we did this year, we did have people last year and time again this year, who support us like Monster Media and Prince on Wood, and through individual supporters, we knew that in those organizations and those supporters, yes, they first and foremost love the environment and want to live and model a life of ecologically responsible living, but they also race mountain bikes, and they love to do, you know, rock climbing and slack lines, and so I I saw what was available this year, and what was different this year was there was some really great adventure films. There was R.J. Ripper, this young man from India who was just innately talented on a mountain bike and ends up having his mountain bike Sold by his mother for 90 cents to scrap metal because she's hearing from villagers that her son is being not serious enough about work and life. And you see him weld together a mountain bike from literal trash and end up catching the eye of a promoter and getting a job as a racer and helping his family out that way. And I knew that would speak to our audience. I also knew that more and more of my colleagues and friends were reaching out to me and saying that they wanted to bring their daughter this time and was it age-appropriate. And and sons, too. And so we chose Where the Wild Things Play because it was such a female empowerment film. It showed, you know, it it was tongue-in-cheek and fun, but it showed the men that are usually snowboarders and all these things in their community kind of sleepily having a beer at the bar while these women and wondering where the ladies are. And these women were out doing tight ropes over canyons, doing yoga poses on them, and downhill mountain biking and rock climbing. And so I felt that was a really fun, empowering thing for kids to see. And then because I had so many inquiries of, is this age appropriate? Can I bring a child to this event? I knew that we should pick big world because, boy, did that speak to every parent and child in the place. You know, it's hard to get an eight-year-old on a six-hour road trip up north, but to take an eight-year-old on a paddleboarding trip in India um, from the States is mind-blowing, and I thought it was beautiful in how it showed the ups and the downs and the realities of this and also the unique opportunity that it gave for this dad to spend time with his son in in a place where they'll never be again, and such um, amazing, beautiful footage. So it does. It's guided. All of what we pick is guided by our community, but also what's available. We have big, big plans for Wild and Scenic in Riverside. So we, for the second year, have been at the Box, which is the second story of the Fox Theater Complex, and it's a small venue, um, about 200 seats, and the outdoor terrace has been wonderful for our VIP event. And what we see doing next year is keeping a evening VIP event, but really um, to do a fundraiser for Waterkeeper and our programs. But we want to grow this into a true festival. So next year it will be all day Saturday. There will be films available at the actual Fox Theater, and we will do our, our gala in the evening at the Fox, and then there will be films running through matinee on Sunday. And instead of just being a waterkeeper-hosted event, I want to grow those partnerships that have looked like a sponsorship up until now and have those small orgs take a bigger stake in the actual festival. So there are orgs even smaller than mine that can't really wrap their minds or their staffing around putting on even a small wild and scenic like ours. And so this is an opportunity for them to sponsor a film or a section of films, and during that time, for them to engage their base and bring their base out and have their moment on stage to talk about their why and give their ask for donations. And if we can do that, we're so much stronger together. So we have tried and true supporters who aren't ready or willing to do their own, but do see the value in it and are excited to take a part of it. So what this will grow into is a full three-day festival based out of the Fox Theater We may annex the the box as well and have additional showings. We want to have our new hotels downtown that are surrounding it, that are opening, have special pricing for that weekend. And we are setting our sights on Robert Redford to ask for him to come and emcee and introduce his own film. He has a line of films in the festival called The New Environmentalist. We'd like to do a meet and greet with him for our fundraising portion. And we want to grow this into the premier festival for environmental adventure films in California, in Southern California particularly.
0: Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. And you can do it, Megan.
4: (laughs) Thank you. I, I believe we can as a community because we're all so dedicated. All of the conservation organizations here are full of people who are truly dedicated to their mission and they know that together we're stronger.
0: Megan is a true leader in my community. She has worked in environmental education for 20 years and has extensive experience working with children, teachers, parents, and other organizations in the community. She creates programs, leads programs, and launches new initiatives just like the film festival. She is busy, 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 and yet when you speak with her, she makes you feel seen and heard. During my conversation with Megan... I learned more about her career path. I found out how she launched a nature club for children and their families in 2008 as the local economy came crashing down. I share this information with you because she launched this nature club with two colleagues while she was an independent educator and a new mom. Megan learned valuable lessons developing the nature club, which, by the way, now serves 1,400 families and is about to become an established nonprofit. This nature club has been Megan's side gig for many years. I asked Megan if she had advice for the educators listening to this podcast who are actively building community where they live. Here is what she had to say. My podcast is for independent educators, for freelance educators who launch their own projects and launch their own initiatives. What advice do you have regarding building community?
4: Well... There's a lot, you know, first would be to temper your enthusiasm with strategic planning. It is very easy, especially when you, um, when you have kids, young kids, to get extremely excited about something, you're on fire about it, you throw a bunch of gusto at it, and then if others don't meet you with that same level of enthusiasm, it quickly burns out. And so I would say take your time. Be strategic. Set goals for yourself that are attainable. But in the very beginning, find your people. Find those like-minded individuals who have time and energy to give so that you're not taking everything on yourself. Um, Martyrdom doesn't serve any mission well. And then in addition to that, I think making sure that you're being as inclusive and open as you can, trying to step out of your own perspective to make sure that you're not missing out on an entire group of people that would be so fantastic to your movement, that would be so well served or serve you well, because they may not be in your social circle or in your York, you know, if it's not if it's not your church, your job, your community, you might not realize that those folks are out there. And so, for example, when we launched Inland Empire Kids Outdoors, it was 2008, and in 2008, our economy came smashing down around us. And so, when we thought, you know, Wendy and Tony and I, that we were going to go to these meetups and have 20 other moms there in with babies in tow. What we ended up with was 12 other moms and eight dads with new babies strapped to them with wild eyes, not knowing what they were going to do because their wife's job at the city or wherever was safe, but their construction job had ended or their engineering job had ended and they were not by choice becoming stay-at-home dads and they were trying to get outside of that house with those kids and didn't really and were out of their element. And if we had stuck to our ideas of what we were looking for, stay at home moms, then we would have alienated all of those families that made us so much better and stronger. Those dads had great ideas and great resources and were fantastic. If we had really kind of only wanted people in the same boat as us that were at home for the first time in their lives and used to being very productive and needed to get the heck out of the house, if we hadn't also opened up to the fact that there are working moms and dads, working families that want to be connected to the outdoors, but have a very limited time to do that. We would have lost that amazing resource. So really stepping back and making sure that you're not just serving your little circle is important.
0: I share my experience at the film festival because it was a learning experience for me on many levels, and I thought others might benefit from what I learned. This experience reminded me of the importance of showing your work. My conversations with the three festival goers who sat down to chat with me reinforced what I continue to observe in my conversations with educators. And that is, family experiences in nature leave lasting impressions. I also share this experience because Megan made many points that are worth remembering for freelance educators who are leading an initiative in a community. Megan's advice is, maintain a balance between those who've already enrolled in your mission and reaching out to new audiences. Be flexible. Think beyond your normal approach to your project. You may be excluding people who may benefit from your initiative. Likewise, you may be missing out on the opportunity to learn from someone else. Pay attention to what matters to your audience. Don't just pay attention to who they are. And lastly, listen to what your audience is telling you. I would like to thank Megan Brousseau, Crystal Valenzuela, Kyle Rodriguez, and Victor for their time and for their contributions to this episode. I also want to thank Kelly Cox, Kathleen Garness, Dr. Rupu Gupta, Gretchen Halbert, Sarah Johnson, Janice Kelly, and Anna Laurent for sending materials to share on my exhibitor's table and for making the work of freelance environmental educators more visible. To view resources mentioned in this episode, please visit the show notes. Thank you, and I'll see you next week. Terra is a podcast for and about independent educators working in natural resource fields and environmental education. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and colleagues. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Tanya Marion.